welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who always gives me a guard of honour. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. That was me clapping. Thank you very that was much. me clapping. Yes, but I did walk away halfway through. I hope that's okay. <laughs> so Man City did do that uh-huh. before beating Liverpool 4-0. I can't believe that you're the one who wants to talk about Guard of Honors. I thought Guards of Honor, excuse me. I would have thought for <laughs> sure this is a topic that you could not care less about. But here we are. I consulted with the Attorneys General and they said that I should watch it. <laughs> so I'm guessing that you didn't actually care. You weren't caught up in that will they or won't they. But w- was this an example of like how I try to read a lot into celebrations as to who enjoys celebrating with whom? Is this you sort of looking at this from me like what can I extract from this whole situation? I was just being a completist because okay. I watched from kickoff, but then I think just because you mentioned it, I was like, oh yeah, I wonder if that happened. So mm-hmm. I went back and watched it. Yeah. And the, the Man City players do, they do the God of Honour, right? So they're out there. They give Liverpool the honour of that for being champions. But as the last Liverpool player enters the sort of the, the tunnel of the God of Honour, Man City players start peeling away mm-hmm. immediately. So that by the time the Liverpool players finish going through, it's literally just the two assistant referees left. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's just a marker of, all right, Liverpool, you are champions, we're coming for you. And that's kind of what this whole game was for me, because we had agreed that we were going to kind of break it down and review it. I think we were really excited about that before the title had been decided, because it felt like maybe this could still be something uh, like approaching drama. And then almost as soon as I was like, all right, maybe this isn't like worth getting that involved in. Suddenly I got really involved in it from a, this (laughs) seems like Man City sort of laying down the gauntlet now for next season starting with the guard of honor with the way they played the way they approached this the fact that they won four nil the handshake afterwards where pep guardiola like almost broke jürgen klopp's hand being like i'm so excited to shake your hand but also i want you to know that i'm coming for you next season this sort of <laughs> did seem like man city reminding liverpool they're still very good and there's going to be a title challenge next year so the question i had about this was do we read anything into this game mm-hmm. for next season and but i feel like the answer is already yes the yeah. way we're talking i'm about surprised this, but yes right and I feel, like, I feel like the answer isn't that Liverpool are suddenly bad. No. Um, I think the answer is just that Manchester City are motivated and they're showing it already. Mm-hmm. Worth noting that Man City do have stuff to play for this season, mm-hmm. sort of, right? In that they have that second leg of the Champions League round of 16 against Real Madrid and then potentially uh, Champions League quarterfinals. So even though they're sort of, I want to say, more or less guaranteed second place, FA Cup Man, as well. City are, Man City are not going to cool it down because they've, you know, they've still got competitive games coming fairly mm-hmm. soon. But they still went the extra, the extra level here, I think, to, uh, to lay a marker. Um, yeah. So what, what else did you notice from this game? Taylor? I mean, I think, I think I would just follow up to that with like, yeah, I absolutely agree. This was not Liverpool suddenly being exploited. And I don't think we can come away from this thinking like, oh, Man City have established the blueprint for how to beat them. I think well, this was, well, maybe a little bit, but I think a lot of this was Liverpool now effectively kind of being on the beach and like, you guys know we won, right? Like, let's all play this at half speed. And I think Man City coming out with the intent of we're going to shred you. Like, I don't think Liverpool were going to be so upset about this. But simultaneously, I'm sure that they would have enjoyed winning this game to further cement their standing. And I'm guessing Man City enjoyed the opposite of that. Well, here's what I saw. For the first 25 minutes, basically, I think Liverpool were at full tilt and Man City were at full tilt. And it was kind of fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. Because they both had really high lines. Did you notice that the game was played like 20 yards either side of central midfield? It was like a game of Russian roulette with a high off sideline. But even that, I think, is Man City's 
not new approach, but like at least having the youngish, fastish centre backs in Garcia and Laporte. Like you don't do that with Fernandinho, no. is what I'm saying, right? So this is definitely like a new, a newish thing or a marker for the rest of the season that Man City are doing. Can I just but jump in really quickly as... to say that I had it in my notes as reverse World War One because you didn't have no man's land; they were just crammed together like yeah. right near each other. It was a very strange view of the field for me, for sure. Yeah, it was more like hand to hand combat. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> um, and that wasn't a weird camera angle thing, right? That really mm-hmm. was what they were doing. They yeah. were both pushed up really high. Um, and Liverpool nearly profited from that. There were a few like chipped balls over the top. Salah got in once. There were, uh, Mane got in a couple of times. It, like Liverpool nearly caught them. So it, it could have not worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as what Sterling wins that penalty. Yep. And by the way, Sterling, I think won a psychological battle with Joe Gomez mm-hmm. that goes back to their, uh, little, little, uh, um, I don't, even, I don't even know. I don't want to call it a fight, but their little disagreement on England duty. You remember yeah, that? Yeah. Um, but Sterling definitely got the better of him this time, right? Cruyffed and forced him into giving away a penalty kick, yeah. and then uh, fires the ball through his legs for the for the other goal. But as soon as Man City win that penalty kick and De Bruyne scores it, I do think Liverpool they don't ease off, but there's a slight like even the second goal. You see, the, the midfield doesn't immediately chase back at 100% like they normally would. There's just a slight easing off mm-hmm. after that first goal goes, it goes in. And I think that's why it's 3-0 by halftime. Yeah, I think as soon as... Because I don't think it was like individual effort necessarily. It wasn't like Liverpool just took their foot off the gas and stopped running or stopped working. I think it's that you had a loss of focus and intensity, which is sort of what the system relies upon. And then you had individual players trying to make up for that. Andy Robertson trying to make plays on his own is exactly what Jurgen Klopp doesn't want because that leaves space Space to be exploited, which Man City are obviously going to do. So, yeah, I don't think yeah, it Phil was Foden's going to turn him. Right, exactly. Oh, man, Phil Foden. I have things to say, by the way. Yes. Um, actually, speaking of Phil Foden, mm-hmm. I want to talk about the, the big tactical change-up that Pep Please. Guardiola did. He went, when Man City were in possession, he went with a sort of four, I would call it a 4-2-2-2, two, 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 right? So you've got uh, Gundogan and Rodri as the two, like, central midfielders and then De Bruyne and Foden as like sort they start as wide but they came central so they played underneath Sterling and Jesus and I think I'm pretty confident that Pep has been looking at the way Liverpool defend with Firmino uh, basically blocking the centre-backs path forward but also blocking any passes into most teams like number six their key Mm -hmm. central midfielder and then Liverpool's other midfielders mark your other midfielders I think he's decided the way to beat Liverpool is to go for a central midfield overload. And then suddenly you've got four men in a box shape mm-hmm. and it's much, much harder to stop to stop Man City coming out that way. I, I think Pep has a blueprint. I think this is what we'll see next time they play Liverpool. I, d- I don't disagree with you. Do, are you surprised then that there's still that high line though? Like, do you think you need that to keep things compressed and to keep things tight centrally? Because it also seems to me that... Well, this is going... when Man City have the ball. Okay, that makes that makes a difference so then. What, yeah, what I'm talking about is when mm. Man City have the ball coming out of the back... Liverpool do that great job that we talked about on the How Liverpool Win the League show where Firmino blocks the centre-backs and blocks the passes into midfield. Salah and Mane block the passes out wide to the full-backs. And then you've got three central midfielders behind that. Mm-hmm. And normally that's just too much for any team to to slice through. Um, but Pep's solution is to go with essentially four... Like sacrifice having wide attackers temporarily mm-hmm. um, and have four central midfielders. And if those central midfielders are all ball players, Gundogan, Rodri, De Bruyne and Foden, um, they can suddenly find space in Liverpool's midfield, which has been the thing that no one could do. I'm just looking forward to the day when we have like a 10v10, like like U6 sort of game when everybody's just slammed numbers into the middle to see if yeah. they can counteract. Like they just, it keeps being a, a one-upsmanship sort of situation. We're getting there. Uh-huh. We're getting there, yeah. Because um, even Liverpool kind of have four central midfielders if Firmino drops back in, 
right? Yeah. And I think what Guardiola's doing is the box shape, I think, gets them on the outside of Liverpool's more like 3-1 midfield shape when Firmino joins. Um, and honestly, it worked because they did find passes through Liverpool's midfield. It's part of the reason uh, that they, they won 4-0. So that had me excited because it makes me mm-hmm. look ahead to next season and think, oh, Pep has a plan and he's already, he's already testing it out. And if people haven't listened to the Graham Ruffin uh, show yet, one of the things, uh, first of all, you should. Second of all, one of the things I thought was most interesting is, and we talk on this or talk about this, that there's this narrative in England, I feel like, of like, oh, Pep's leaving Man City. They might not have the Champions League. He's going to go back to Barcelona. It's going to be fine. And it seems very clear that he is not going back to Barcelona, at least not next season, because of everything that's happening there and all the turmoil. So short of him leaving to go somewhere else random or taking a sabbatical, it feels like what he's going to do is double down in his efforts to reestablish his dominance in the Premier League. Yes. And I think you see that here as sort of a, an early example of what we should expect for next season. I mean, I think at the very least, unless I misunderstand the situation, he has one more year on his contract, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So even if Man City are banned from the Champions League, he's still going to be like, all right, one more year, let's win this Premier League back. That's why uh, next season could be exciting. The extra time to tinker is going to be a thing. And I'm going to assume that that extra time to tinker will include Phil Foden. I would like to pause and talk about him for a moment, if you would, yeah. because he... I I'd like to talk about him for four hours. How about that's that? fine. I, I, <laughs> I feel like, like because Man City are so good and have the talent they have, and then Liverpool have been so dominant, it's easy to talk about other players and the rise of Mason Greenwood and uh, Marcus Rashford. Like, we should be way more excited, especially England fans, about Phil Foden. Like, it's a big yeah. deal that he can come into this Man City team coached by Pep Guardiola and not look out of place at all, and if anything, look like a performer that could electrify next season uh, and embarrass Andy Robertson all at once. (laughs) Yeah, and there's going to be space in the squad next season because David Silva won't be there anymore. So I think, I mean, I think Pep picked his strongest team this game, and I think Phil Foden was in it. I mean, he he backed it up if that is the case. Just the yeah. way the way he baits Andy Robertson for that goal and pulls him out and then knows exactly what he's doing. Like, he is in, in complete control of that sequence that he knows yeah. when Robertson's coming. He knows how to bait him to pull him even more in. Then it's the layoff, the quick reverse, gets the ball back. It's a good finish. Just that sequence alone is impressive. But then his overall game, the like the moments he's on the ball, the way he kind of drifts into space and pulls people with him, I thought it was an excellent game from Phil Foden. And another reason why I'm excited to watch Man City next season which is not a thing i'm entirely comfortable saying <laughs> does phil foden go to euro 2021 i'm thinking he probably does because he'll have a decent season next season who else would who would be in contention for like a similar position uh, it's tough it depends where he ends up playing for england right because mm-hmm. he could be one of the wide guys competing with sterling and rashford and sancho um or he could be one of the um, england right now play uh like a six and two eights mm-hmm. So he could be one of the two eights. So he'd be competing with maybe like Oxlade Chamberlain yeah. or Deli Ali or yeah. I think I, I think that's the answer for me. Is that like I I don't know right now, but I feel like what we've seen from him this game this season and my expectations going forward are that he's like he's in the conversation, and then it's about like what does he do to further his standing to cement his place. Uh, but maybe at th- this time last year, I certainly wouldn't have been like yeah for Euro 2020, it's definitely going to be Phil Foden's time. He's in that conversation. Oh, no yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think he is he has definitely increased. To stock. Maybe he will benefit from that uh, pushback of a year. I just like his um, like speed, but not running speed. There's just a lot of quick passes. Like yeah. Even in that, the goal where he combines with De Bruyne, he also, I think he moves, receives, and I think he gives a quick pass to Gundogan as soon mm. as he receives it. He's part of like making Man City really like uh, move that ball quickly, which yeah. I, I always like a player that does that. I think we need Phil Foden sure and Christian Pulisic in the same team. That's what <sighs> I want. Just, just, I mean, just wall passes the whole way up the field. 
I mean, we've got like a decade for it to happen. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything yeah. else we should talk about from this game? Uh, not for me, no. I think um, I think that's that's all there is to it. We're not going to mm. analyze every goal, right? It's no. more about uh, what what this possibly means for next season. The one thing I'd add is there's transfer rumors, at least today, that Liverpool are in for Thiago mm-hmm. by Munich, central midfielder. And I can't imagine a man more perfect to play in that Liverpool midfield. We talked the other day about how you kind of need to be an all-round player, but you can do a bit of everything. Um, and I think Thiago fits the bill perfectly. So, mm-hmm. um, And I would also add that like... Any ideas we had about maybe Weston McKenney going to Liverpool? Like it's it's a reminder that Thiago is the type of player they're looking for. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. When we had that conversation yesterday, I think my list was like West Ham and Crystal Palace. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of left it there because I think we got we got focused on other teams. I think specifically Arsenal. But yeah, yeah he's got some work to do. It, it's important just not to get overexcited, right? right? We all love Weston McKenney, but you don't put it. You can't expect him to go to a team like Liverpool that just win the league and start immediately. There was also I saw a build story. You know, builders like the German mm-hmm. tabloid. I don't know how much to trust them or not, but they were linking him with Everton and Newcastle, which again oh. feels more um, realistic than. Weston McKinney going to Liverpool. Nice. All right. Yeah. I, I could take Weston McKinney at Everton with Ancelotti. Let's make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, right? That could work. Yeah. Um, you ready for listener questions? Yes, I we've am. Got a, we've got a nice handful. Um, I'm going to start us off with a question from Lucas Newton. Mm-hmm. We've had this question ready to go for a little while, right, Tyler? We have. kind of like it. Lucas asks, has there ever been a Scotty Pippen equivalent in soccer? Um, and Lucas explains someone who by any measure of the game is one of the best but he or she does not get the credit or praise or monetary compensation etc and I think Lucas sent this question not long after we answered the question who is the Michael Jordan of soccer yeah (laughs) Um, so yeah Taylor who's who's your nomination for the Scotty Pippen of soccer I think there's lots of ways to take this. And the two things I would say is that one, when you're talking about a team that employs a player like Michael Jordan when it comes to soccer, that means most of the people on the team are going to be well compensated unless we're talking about like the New York Cosmos, which I'm not. So that's one thing. The other thing I want to note is that you and I talk about soccer all day, every day. So in terms of finding somebody who's underappreciated or doesn't get the credit they deserve, I feel like that goes too far down the rabbit hole. So I've got it from a broader perspective of... Who is who is the GOAT soccer player of the last 20 years, in my opinion? It's Lionel Messi. So who's a player who maybe is integral to what Barcelona do, gets some credit, everybody knows is a very good player, but is never going to be on that same level? And I think you could make the argument at Sergio Busquets, who definitely Ooh. gets credit and is a player that everybody knows is very good. But if you're talking about Barcelona and what makes them so good, you're always going Lionel Messi first. Yeah, I think I think you're right in that soccer nerds like us mm-hmm. like really enjoy what Busquets does we love the sort of open your hips up fake like you're going to pass yeah. wide but then find the pass through the lines but I would say um who's a good I, I often do this I often go to my dad right mm-hmm. someone who doesn't watch a lot he does watch soccer but doesn't he's not immersed in it like we are I don't think he'd know who Sergio Busquets is, but he'd definitely know who Leo Messi is. <laughs> uh, also, Sergio Busquets did briefly date Madonna, I think. So that factors into it as well. <laughs> what? Scotty Pippen dated Madonna, man. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Dated is a word. There's other words you could yeah. use. But anyway, Daryl, what about you? <laughs> I guess PK and Shakira are the modern, the modern yeah. equivalent. <laughs> True. Right. Um, I mean, anything else to say about Busquets? Anything else to bolster the case? 
I mean, I, I think I think I'll just kind of end up repeating the same stuff. The I also had okay. the idea of it being Firmino for Liverpool because so many people I know who aren't Liverpool fans are like, oh, as soon as they get a goal scorer, they're going to be even better. And I think that like goes against what Firmino does for that team and yeah. the role he plays. But I also don't know if there's anybody who's like eclipses him in fame. Like sometimes it's Salah, sometimes it's Mane, sometimes it's Van Dyke. But it's not that Jordan level player that he is kind of standing in the shadow of the way yeah, it is th- with Busquets and Messi. I would kind of agree in that Firmino doesn't get the credit from like um, an uninformed soccer fan, right? Yeah. He, only, he only gets the credit, like not everyone's going to notice the way he closes down space, the way mm-hmm. he like cuts the field in half and the way he comes back into midfield and connects things. If you're just someone who looks at how many goals he scores, you're like, yeah, he's decent, right? You know what I mean? So I think that there is a bit of that with Firmino. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got two nominations. One that only just came to me when you were talking. Um, I think a rival to the Busquets nomination could be Pedro. Yeah. That's a good shout. Hey, Pedro was part of that original uh, Guardiola Messi team, right? He yeah. was one of the front three. And I also think Pedro at Chelsea, like, I think he's done magnificent things. And yet, no one is like, no one seems all that upset that he's possibly leaving or almost definitely leaving at the end of this season. So I don't know if he's the Scotty Pippen of soccer, but he's, he's definitely, I want to say, underappreciated. He's the Tony Kukoc, if we're going with the Bulls <laughs> extended analogy. Is that the big Croatian fella? Yes, it is. <laughs> I think the real Scotty Pippen of soccer is. Coutinho, not Felipe Coutinho, but oh, Antonio. Oh, good shout! Yeah, you know who good I call. mean. I know exactly who you mean. Antonio Wilson Vieira Honorio, uh, also known as Coutinho. Um, he played. He was Pele's strike partner all through the 1960s for Santos. Santos were maybe the best team in the world, especially in the the early 60s. Right, they won the Copa Libertadores back to back. They mm-hmm. won the Intercontinental Cup, which was like the Club World Cup of its day, back to back. He really was Pele's strike partner. He scored 370 goals in 475 games for Santos, maybe the best team in the world at the time. And yet when I said his name, I'll bet a lot of people thought I was talking about the other Coutinho. I mean, I did for a moment until I realized what you'd done. And it's a really yes. smart smart pick as well, just f- like from even going deeper on like some of those uh, intercontinental cups that you mentioned. I think one of them they win a- after having to play like a tiebreaker. They play three games and Pele only plays in the final. And that's the one they win like by a wide margin and get the title as a result. And that yeah. does seem like when Jordan steps away... And then it's just sort of Pippen's team. They're still good, but they're not as good. They're not as like convincingly dominant until yeah. Jordan returns. And then they race to that next level, similar to Pele coming back. And then Santos moved to that next level. And we profiled the Santos team, right? When we mm-hmm. did the uh, the Champions Cup of history. And I remember one of the things we talked about was the partnership between Coutinho and mm-hmm. Pele was magnificent because Coutinho is basically a number nine right he's a poacher he's a fox in the box but he also is someone who stays on the last defender and like pushes you know pushes the center backs backwards and that lets Pele come underneath remember Pele's really like a weird 10 who scored a lot of goals right Coutinho would be the one who pinned the center backs back and give Pele a little bit of space to play so I don't know if the Pippin Jordan um, on court partnership is about complementary styles because I don't you know I'm not that familiar mm. with basketball uh, but I do know that the Coutinho Pele uh, partnership is about complementary styles and two guys who just really worked well together and what but and the thing I would say that is really similar to Pippin I assume Pippin put up a load of points mm-hmm. um, so I want to repeat that Coutinho scored 370 goals in 475 games uh, for maybe the best team in the world in the 1960s it's, it's okay it's an all right return <laughs> I've seen better. I've seen better. I'm not sure I have, actually. That might be a lot. 
I, I there, that, that you. Is, have I got you? You've got me. That is that yes. is it. To the to the extent that I'm now because conf- like normally I would try to throw in like it would be like Scotty Coutinho Pippin is like not Scotty Pippin's new nickname. Is it is it Coutinho Pippin? Is it Pippin Coutinho? Because if you only have the, <laughs> the the mononym, I don't really know how you give him a nickname off of that. Yeah, he's already got the Coutinho. Right? Exactly. <laughs> All right, you ready for today's first sponsor? I always am, Mr. Grove. Drum roll, please. Mm-hmm. Because today's show oh, is sponsored by... Thank you. Mm-hmm. Today's show is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries are specially formulated CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12. They are super consumable. Taylor, I don't know if you heard it. I don't expect you to hear all my ad reads, all my solo ad reads. Did you hear my unboxing when I opened my Sunday Scaries? No, delivery? I didn't. I'm sorry I missed that. When did you do that one? Uh, sometime early this week, I want to say. Did you get um, your yellow shot? It was on MLS Assist. It okay. was on MLS Assist. I did get my YOLO shot, uh, which is Caffeine Plus CBD, which I, I can't think of another place where you can get that that combo. No. Um, energy without the jitters is what it says on the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also got some tincture, which yeah. just means, you know, like the basically the oil that you can just drop on your tongue. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate that Sunday Scaries have a lot of... Uh, interesting ways of delivering cbd yep. like the gummies um and the and the yolo shot but the tincture is just a back to basics kind of thing right if you don't want all the all the fancy stuff you don't want the little the little bears you can just go straight to the source with the, the little, cbd tincture. the little bears yeah it, it, it feels like a combination of like modern science meets like old west medicine <laughs> like wild west medicine of like put this tincture on and you'll feel calmer like Something i do feel like a right? cowboy yeah exactly the word sounds very wild west it uh, does but <laughs> but cbd is not wild west it mm. is perfectly legal perfectly it's, it's, legal it's, i was gonna say it's quite the opposite of wild west it's calm west <laughs> it's relaxed west calm west yeah cbd can help you relax help you keep your composure um help you enjoy watching television <laughs> it can uh, just which just is probably example. a big reason why it's become a leading brand for millennials uh because yeah millennials want to watch th- their netflixes they want to watch I mean, their hulus and everybody wants to watch their netflixes no just millennials that's products. it nobody else and the cbs all accesses <laughs> of course of course that too it <laughs> is cbd is good for watching a game because i can sort of slow down and focus on what's happening as opposed to like oh, i gotta check twitter and i gotta do this and i gotta do that it helps me just relax just a little bit so i can focus in a bit more at least that's been my experience specially formulated to help Taylor watch soccer. There we go. Um, and if you'd like to get 25% off your first order, use the code soccer at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. If you enter the code soccer where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. So if you go to sundayscaries.com, you can find out what product might be best for you and use the code soccer. There we are. Thank you very much to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring this episode. Daryl, we have a next question. It comes from Shreyas Romani, who Ooh, asks, yeah. when can we start saying that the U.S. is entering a period of having a golden generation? I struggled with this for a long time. Can I, I finally... Oh, yeah, go on. Wait, I was, I was actually going to ask, like, is it worth for people worth for people who are like new-ish to soccer explaining what a golden generation is? Yes. Um I want to say self-explanatory and it doesn't have, well, it doesn't have like a firm, firm definition, Mm -hmm. right? But generally it's when a national team has a generation of players or a lot of players all at the same time who are maybe better than you usually expect from that nation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Like when, so for example, when um, England had Gerrard and Lampard and Beckham and Scholes and Rooney and Owen and Ferdinand and Ashley Cole, like just a lot of high profile yep. players all at the same time. It doesn't come with a guarantee of success as that England team 
found out. But I think a golden generation is essentially, yeah, when you just sort of, instead of just having like one or two really good players mm-hmm. at once, you suddenly have a lot of players who are better than usually expected for that country. Is that yeah. a fa- that's a fair definition. I'm going to submit that to Webster's. I, I, think, you, I think you should. Is, I, is I Dr. Say, Samuel Johnson still around? I'm going to send it to him. <laughs> I I think that's the thing that you should find out in your spare time. But for now, then, <laughs> I think we should get to the to the question. Then, when can we say the U.S. has entered a period of having a golden generation? So I think already we have enough really really hmm. good young players in Pulisic, Adams, McKenney, Dest, Rayner, Cannon, Sargent, Pomical, who could realistically be in a starting eleven. That I think as soon as we qualify for a World Cup, or as soon as all these players start playing together in what the hex or whatever world cup qualification tournament we end up with i think we can say it because it will finally be all these youngsters together like we so we've already yeah. been playing with pulisic and McKenney and sometimes tyler adams because he was in and out injured right but once you add a fit adams to that and you add des to that and geo rainer appears to be like he's going to be part of the squad going forward i feel like that's already five players i've just named i think that's the beginnings of a golden generation I'm not sure I agree. I'm also not sure I disagree. And here's where I would it's like tough, right? your thought on, on this. Like, with the Golden Generation, is it relative to other teams or is it relative to your own national team and the history of it? As in, like... The second for, one. To, okay, so it's basically comparing it to the other na- like teams that have gone before it, not comparing it to, like, I don't know, like, they're not going to beat Germany. Like, it, you're saying, like, basically, if you're looking at other U.S. national teams, is this the Golden Generation compared to what's come before? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be the Golden Generation, like, since the u.s national team started okay right because you can have multiple golden generations mm-hmm. right okay i believe uh, so then i think with that in mind i would say that this is a baby golden generation i'm not quite ready to like anoint it as like yep we've got this guy and this guy and this guy because to the point when you were listing those england players those were all players who were starting for premier league teams were incredibly talented were global stars if not superstars i don't think we have people who are on that level yet certainly right, but we, we don't just have pe- we just agreed that it, it's not mm-hmm. relative to each team right it's relative to what you've had before right and i think then when you look at it from that it's still for me is you had other teams with more proven like across the board like that 2002 team i would argue you've got a lot of people in there who are maybe of different generations that's the only confusing thing of like different time periods but still you've got enough consistency and quality there that like that to me is still a golden generation more than the one we have now once we see this team more and i think that's the other thing is we haven't really seen them on the field in a really long time and not at their full strength if we see them consistently at full strength for a couple games then i think i feel more comfortable about anointing them a golden generation so actually, here's, here's the thing I was thinking about as well, trying to answer this question, that mm-hmm. maybe there is something special happening, right? Where we have a generation of new talent coming through mm-hmm. and we're all very excited about them. And a lot of them have like gone to Europe early and are really making an impact, right? Pulisic, Adams, McKinney being like the, the headliners. Maybe golden generation is the wrong phrase. Maybe like the heralds for an army of talent might be the better phrase. Wow. You've got, you've got all the players I just named, right? And then yeah. you've also got Weyer, um, who's, you know, making some inroads, but it's been stop and start because of injury. Yeah. But then we've got all these guys who have like only played like, you know, six minutes for Bayern Munich or uh, um, maybe moving to Europe soon or are on the bench for European teams. But you've got Ulysses Yanez, Richie Ledesma, Chris Richards, Gio Busio, um, Alex Mendes. We've got Otosoe at Wolves, Vasilev at Villa, uh, guys like James Sands, Chris Soto, Chris Gloucester, sorry, Sebastian Soto, Chris Gloucester, like Josh Sargent, we don't know if he's going to come good or not. I really feel like there's a pipeline of talent yeah. that's about to come bursting forth. All right. So what, what was your phrasing and what are you watching or reading that led to that phrasing? I called them the heralds for an army of talent. 
That suddenly and just suddenly arriving in Germany. Maybe I've been watching the D-Day landings. I was, I was like, are you watching like like are you reading the Book of Revelations or are you watching a military <laughs> invasion documentary? It's one or the other. But I like that. Yeah, I like that. So I, I think maybe once we see the strongest possible U.S. team to the extent possible playing together and winning and looking very good, then maybe we can move to that move away from heralds to golden. And, and if we are like looking for phrases, there's also, we were talking basketball earlier, mm-hmm. more of a redeem team type quality, right? Because yes. we did fail to qualify yes. um, in 2017. That really was a, a modern low point. And it was like the end of a certain generation, right? A lot of those players were like the, the Klinsman generation um, in terms of just who played for that team. This this is the next wave of talent, right? So I, yeah. I think if we're looking for a phrase, it probably I think redeem team is too uh, borrowing too heavily, right? But I think it's that kind of thing. It's like a fresh optimism from a new generation of talent, and maybe golden's the wrong word. But um, how about the not olden generation? I, I dude, I think you really did hit it on hit it on the head there. Like I think that is exactly what it is, and I think that is where some of my hesitation to say it's the golden generation is coming from from like failing to qualify for the World Cup and then not doing much for a year. Has me has me not wanting to then say like yep yeah, this is the best everything's going to be great so almost I'm I'm good with like redeem team two and the two can be like T O O if you want to go that route it's redeem team spy <laughs> that's perfect there we go <laughs> <laughs> I like that I like that I think we've settled it ready for the next question yes mm. oh I'm looking forward to this one it's from Dustin Brooks Dustin I hope you hear this in time me too. Um, Dustin asks, what are the most important slash efficient slash useful tips and tactics for a successful indoor soccer team? Dustin, add some context for us. I recently moved to a new military base and have been volunteered, parentheses, been told, end parentheses, (laughs) to captain slash coach one of our soccer teams. Due to COVID, we cancelled our regular intramural outdoor season before it had a chance to start and will in turn have a double elimination 5v5 indoor tournament next month. This email was sent in June, so next month is this month, Taylor. It's July. Mm -hmm. I hope this reaches in time. Um, Dustin says, I've played soccer for many years, grew up playing in Germany until I was 15, but never really got into indoor. I'm thinking fluidity is important, aka not really like positions like in a regular game. Instead, everyone just needs to do a little of everything and we should run like crazy since we have only limited subs that's about all i got so yep. what what useful important um tips or um what, what's efficient what's important what's useful what are good tactics for a successful indoor soccer team and they're playing five aside we have talked about the indoor team that we uh, played on together several times on the show, but we're going to do it again because that was a team that basically we, we went to the finals of our indoor league and got destroyed by a team that was, I think, all Brazilians and were much, much more technical than them. And we had some to kind ex-pros, of cha- right? Some yes. recent ex-pros. Yes, and some recent D1 players, which we yeah. were not. Uh, so I think what we learned the following season is that the only way to kind of handle that was to basically go high-press man-mark and make sure that everybody was always covered because what we ended up doing is if you're 1v1 – and like you don't have everybody back or you kind of push too, too many numbers forward, you get caught in transition, you let that team dictate the style of play. If you're hassling them and on them all the time, it makes it really hard for anybody to get into a rhythm. And I think if you don't know the technical ability of your team, but you do know that you're going to have a lot of fitness, then I think that's a thing that you can do is make yeah. sure that everybody is always marked up on somebody. Because even if they do end up getting by one of your players, you still have enough people around and that 1v1 situation is going to slow it down enough that you can then have cover. And I think it gives you the best footing to then uh, defend and counterattack. It's actually very simple, right? Everybody just mark a man, stick mm-hmm. to your man. Don't get tempted into double teaming unless your teammate is in real, real trouble. 
Um, and you know, you can switch occasionally if that's what, if that's what seems like it makes mm-hmm. sense. But if everybody just sticks with their man, then it makes it really hard for the opposition team to, to do anything, right? It's yes. a really, really, um, useful defensive tactic. And not least because quite often you'll win the ball high up the field mm-hmm. and you'll be able to either go for a quick counter attack or, and I think this is key, um, to just retain possession. Mm-hmm. Cause I think one of the keys to indoor is to not rush it. I think too many teams like yep. they just like try and like bash it, especially if they haven't had much of the ball. They'll try for like some ten percent, ten percent success rate counter attack, and you end up just keep giving the ball back and then keep having to defend, and that's exhausting. When mm. you get the ball back, keep it. Yep, keep it, and then like don't get frustrated into those like charge forward and blast a shot wide because i I do think that once you get kind of pulled into that mentality that's when you lose seven nil because you keep just getting exposed you keep trying to commit numbers forward you lose the ball the other team counterattacks and then keeps their defensive shape and it can be really really frustrating so yeah i think keeping the shape keeping the ball as much as you can but not being overly focused on getting forward as fast as possible and scoring goals i think all of that makes sense um i would also say that if dustin is going to be the appointed leader, volunteered coach, captain, I think then you got to take that role. And I think that is another thing that's important is if there's a halftime in this tournament or if you're doing quarters, whatever it might be, like use that as a time to circle everybody up, figure out to the best of you can, like in a very simple way, what is not working. Okay, this guy is their best player. We're going to man mark him the whole time and have it be that. The thing that I think tends to lead to teams getting destroyed after they come out of the halftime break is when you go in halftime and you've got one person saying, hey, we need to attack more. We need to defend more. We need to pass more. Hey, we're not passing enough, but we're passing too. Like once you have a bunch of cross talk. Yeah, one voice. Yeah, and you come away with like, all right, we're going to try to pass more, but like be smarter about it and work harder, but don't be overly confident like you've got too many instructions if it's just very simple like mark that guy he's good don't let him shoot with his right always put him on his left like that's the type of stuff that i think can be the difference especially in that second half yeah i think that actually those are the the things you can learn in a half of indoor soccer assuming you haven't played against these guys before is you know which player favors which foot those are the things if they've got a dangerous player who's always looking to shoot with his right foot you can like communicate that information around the team and just close down that guy's right foot and push him to his left right um, i also think during the game it's probably going to be dustin's job um if they go with this everybody man mark system mm-hmm. and it is really important that every single person does their job because once one person doesn't man mark there's an open guy and the whole thing falls apart right yep. um but it probably needs someone to stay on top of it um i would argue that maybe someone more defensive who sits more towards the back just naturally um be the person that is responsible for just saying like hey steve mark him hey like just tell everybody like hey to your right mark him and you've sort of got to not get distracted by that but stay on top of it so everybody knows that if they switch off for a second they'll have you telling them hey you got to mark him right that might so be keep the, it that, going the whole time yeah that might be the most important piece of information because with that team once we started playing that system it worked really well i think we won like three leagues in a row but every time we would add a new player especially when we added a defensive-minded player there's that inclination to like okay i'm going to drop in and mark my zone and when somebody comes into that area i'll pick them up yeah and that is the opposite of what you're trying to do when you're high pressing and man marking so that we always had to be like no 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 no, you've got to get to that guy and you've got to make it clear what everybody's supposed to be doing and that does require a lot of shouting or instruction or whatever you want to go with but you kind of have you can't just assume that everybody's going to do it because in a lot of ways it is counterintuitive to what you're taught when playing soccer at like true, right? a younger age yeah i had a lot of um almost arguments over yes, drinks afterwards with a lot of <laughs> new players i i actually think in hindsight i did an okay job of still making friends with people afterwards but just pushing really hard for this man marking thing 
Yeah, cause, well, we're going down a different like trajectory now here, but I'm fine with it. Because it was that weird, like you were talking about one thing. You were talking about oranges and the other person was talking about an entirely different fruit. Because you were like, here's why I think man marking works. And they were like, yeah, but if we... If we sit in a zone, then man marking is fine. And it's like, well, no, that's a, those are fundamentally different things. Like, it was just a strange thing to hear a person argue with you, but not really actually <laughs> say anything of substance. So I was here's with you the that whole way. Here's the key thing, though. Hmm. If your team doesn't want to do this, right? Because yep. it is hard work. It takes mm-hmm. a lot of fitness to keep it up. It takes a lot of concentration to keep it up. I actually think the more important thing than everybody man marking is just everybody being on the same page and having the same plan. Right. So I think it's equally valid for your plan to be when we lose the ball, everybody forget man marking, everybody fall back behind the halfway line and we'll all sit in and we'll just like have numbers back and then we'll counterattack. I think that also works. But again, only if everybody does it right. If you lose the ball and half the team or all but one of your team come and sit deep and like one guy stands up front. You can get over. You can get outnumbered, right? Because as soon as they push the extra man forward, you're a you're a you're a man down, right? So mm-hmm. if everybody comes back and sits in, and that's your plan, and everybody knows that's your plan, and then you're going to counterattack when you win the ball back, that is equally valid and equally useful and less exhausting. So I think as long as everybody's on the same page, you're good. Yeah. All right. So so get on the same page, but then the preferred system we would advocate for would be man marking. Everybody on the same page, man mark, work hard. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, right. Any other little tips? I've got a couple to share. Um, um yeah, I think I think my big ones were uh just don't allow for like like the crosstalk at halftime. Make sure you organize at halftime and then yeah, a unified system, my preference would be pressing. That that's what I've got. What what else are your little things? Um I would encourage goalkeepers not to go long unless they have to. Yeah. Because often you're just like setting up a, a one attacker versus two or three defenders situation and you're gonna lose the ball. Um it's much better if you've got time and space to just roll the ball out and start passing from the back. I think that's really, really useful. And then there's, we've talked a lot about how to defend, right? Which really is a huge part of five-a-side. I think if you're the team that's organized and defends, you're going to be the more successful team. When you have the ball, passing and moving and passing and moving is the absolute key, right? If you're too static, if you have like one guy standing on the right wing of like an indoor field and one guy on the left wing and one guy as a center forward and you guys try to make it work like that, it's not going to work, right? The mm. the guy on the right has got to interchange with the center forward and like the left winger has got to come back and a defender overlaps. You've got to keep, every time you pass the ball, you've got to move and look for space every single mm. time. Um, and that way you're, someone will get lazy, someone will switch off. That's why the man marking system works so well, right? Is you're probably the only team that's not going to switch off and let somebody have space. Most of the other teams will switch off, allow you some space if you keep passing and moving. But with that in mind, good point there is that like if you are the striker who then drops in as the fullback pushes forward, you can't then be like, but I'm the striker, I don't have to do defense. So as soon as you lose the ball, you go trotting back up to your like top, yeah. like like point position at the top of the spear. Like, no, you've got to pick somebody up at that point because everybody else might be out of position. So it does require fluidity and a willingness to kind of sacrifice your desire to score goals if you're the attacker to be able to play uh, consistent, cohesive defense. And this is the weird thing. You do need to have positions, but they just need to be starting points. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because um, uh, Dustin says um, not really positions like in a regular game. I would still assign like defender, midfielder, striker, uh, or right side, left side. So at least... When you sort of, uh, you have a rough idea of where you're supposed to be, but then don't get wedded to having to be there the whole time. So like Mm -hmm. a starting place that you can all interchange and move around from as if you were playing for Ajax with Johan Cruyff and Renus Michaels. Lovely. Uh, (laughs) We have have three more questions and scouting to get to. Daryl, is there any any other points you wanted to make sure we covered? 
I mean, I could go for hours, but mm. <laughs> I think I think we got most of them here. Oh, don't shoot from wide angles. It never works. Oh, that is definitely true. That is definitely true. Don't we, shoot I from don't... distance. Don't shoot from distance. It rarely works. Um, but ne- if you do... Never shoot it's... from kickoff or I'm coming to find you. <laughs> there we go. That's the final point. Uh, so, Dustin, I hope we answered uh, so your question, <laughs> and I hope this got to you in time. I really look forward to hearing how it went and yes. maybe how catastrophically uh, you all lost. But we'll find out when that happens. Tyler, uh, could, you tell, could you tell I've been missing indoor... Uh, a little bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. um, let, let's move on before we get too bummed out because, yes, I've been missing it too. And uh, I rode my bike yesterday and was reminded once again how out of shape I am. <laughs> uh, instead, Daryl, let's talk about today's sponsor, Hims, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Does that work for you? Should we talk about Hims? It does. Let's stop at that shop. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, Because uh, 66% of men do start to lose their hair by the age of 35. So if that is you, then you can stop at that shop as well. Because once you've noticed your thinning hair, it can be too late, which is why you've got to take action quickly. Yeah, if your hairline is getting as high as a Man City and Liverpool off sideline. There we go. um, Then it is time to take some action um, if you you want to stop it receding. Mm -hmm. Um, Medically um, approved solutions are the way to go. We've talked before about no snake oil. Don't squeeze Mm -hmm. a snake and expect it to grow your hair back. Don't go to a gas station and buy whatever they sell over the gas station. I assume gas station supplements just should be outlawed based on the uh, the hymns copy. Um, Uh, get Get a prescription solution proven and backed by science. Yes, the the gas station ones do again to go with the old west analogy. That does feel like the modern equivalent of snake oil. Of like, yep, this tonic that has things in it will definitely cure all of your maladies. Uh, I, I think, yeah, I'll go with the the science uh, FDA approved products. That seems to be a bit more uh, of a guarantee of success. And the way it works is Hims connects you to a licensed medical professional online, which will save you lots of time and probably lots of money. It's completely confidential, completely discreet. You answer a few quick questions. The medical professional reviews your answers and then they determine if Hims is right for you. And if it is, they can prescribe your medication to treat your hair loss and have it shipped mm-hmm. directly to your door. And I think the the uh, thing I'm I'm most interested in, or I think is very cool, is that they are giving you a very good deal here. If you're not happy with the result after 90 days, uh, Hims will give you a full refund. So you can basically try it out, and if it's not working, if you don't feel like there's been any success, then you can get that full refund, and our listeners can get their first visit absolutely free by going to forhims.com slash totalsoccer. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash totalsoccer. Oh, I get to read the disclaimer. I get to read the disclaimer. Okay. Full refund of price paid available for first 90 days supply. Refund request must be made between 90 and 180 days after product shipment delivered. Prescription products require an online consultation with a medical professional who will determine if a prescription is appropriate. Restrictions apply. See website for full details and, and important safety information. Seven out of ten there. Remember, that's forhims.com slash total soccer. Thank you very much to Hims for sponsoring this episode. Daryl, more listener questions. As I said previously, let's get to Dan Martini. Looking- Seven out of ten. Seven and a half. Looking at the list of previous Premier League winners, uh, one club stands out from the rest besides Leicester City, of course. How did Blackburn Rovers win (laughs) a Premier League title and then fall down to relegation battles and ultimately relegation five years later? So I, I know the answer to this. And I also mm-hmm. researched it to make sure that my memory, you know, lines up with reality. I assume you also know, right? Just uh, can I give you my abbreviated friendly. answer? Yeah, that's what I was hoping for. Yeah. Uh, my abbreviated answer is money and then lack of money. That is basically it. Although cool. there's a little period in between where they still had money but managed to get relegated. All right. Um, yes. So Blackburn are a, like a famous historical team, right? If you watch mm-hmm. the English game, they were, you know, they were that team, right? Mm-hmm. 
Fergusuter. Fergusuter. Oh, Taylor, those days feel so long ago. Coronavirus has been going on a long time. Happily. Happily a long time ago. um, So here's what happened. Blackburn were like towards the bottom of the the old second division um, in Mm. the early 1990s. And Jack Walker took over. Jack Walker was a local steelworks owner and a lifelong Blackburn fan. He was not a young man. And he basically, I think, decided, all right, I've made all this money. I'm a Blackburn fan. Blackburn are rubbish. I'm going to just pour money into this team and see how good we can make them. And the figure I remember being touted at the time was that he was going to make available £40 million in transfer fees, which sounds like nothing yeah. now, right? That won't get you Ashraf Hakimi right now. He just went for, I think, £42 million <laughs> from Dortmund to Inter. But back then, a £40 million war chest, I believe is the phrase that was uh, in the English tabloids a lot, was an awful lot of money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at the time his quote was he was going to make Manchester United look like poppers, I think is what he is wanted right? to do. Yes. Um, so here's the, the big thing that they did at Blackburn. He said he wanted to make Man United look cheap. That's what it was. There we go. At Blackburn, he managed to get Kenny Dalglish to become mm-hmm. manager in 1991. And that was the the masterstroke because I'm not sure what people, I know people think of Kenny Dalglish as this like legend now, but at the time he was the guy that had just been in charge of that really dominant Liverpool team. Mm-hmm. And then had resigned. So to get Kenny Dalglish to come and manage a second division team was an absolute coup. And it sent a message that we're serious, right? We're mm-hmm. very, very serious. So they get promoted. They sign Alan Shearer for £3.6 million, pounds, which gives, yeah. you a, gives you an idea of how far £40 million would go back in the day, right? Um, they finish fourth. They finish second. And eventually they win the Premier League in 1994-1994. 1995, right? So that's the height of it. Alan Shearer and Chris Sutton, they used to call them the SAS, Shearer and Sutton. Um, that's right. Then I think the following season, Dalglish resigns. And then essentially, none of the managers after that, Ray Harford, Roy Hodgson, Brian Kidd, are able to really have that same magic. A lot of players start leaving, like Shearer goes to Newcastle um, and so on. None of them are as good at building a team or managing a team as Kenny Dalglish. They get relegated, right? They've still got money and it's just a bit of a shock that it all fell apart. They come back up, but Jack Walker dies in 2000 and leaves leaves Blackburn to a trust who just aren't as good at you know spending the money or not, aren't even that keen to spend money. Um, eventually, they get relegated again, and then the team gets bought by Venkis Chicken, um, who are not good at running a football team, let's put it no. that way. My understanding from what I read, I didn't know this at the time, but I read this recently, they essentially had a friend who was an agent and they let the agent run the team. And the agent signed all his own players, um, like with the manager not really having much of a say. Sam Allardyce left, I think, over this. Um, and it's basically gone badly ever since. And Wolves saw that blueprint and were like, let's do that, but better? Kind of, yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, they don't sign only George Mendes players. Let's be real real clear about that. But yeah, Wolves are doing a, uh-huh. a much better version of that. Yes, yes, they are. Yeah, and I remember, I remember the days of Blackburn being like, I don't remember them winning the Premier League by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember like we had friends in Richmond who had decided to be Blackburn fans because they were fun on occasion and yes. they had this guy and that guy and then it all went south. And that, yeah, in my mind, really corresponds with Venkies, even if that's sort of unfair because it started uh, prior to them. I'm trying to think of some names people would know. Obviously, everyone knows Alan Shearer, right? Mm-hmm. Some people will know Chris Sutton. Graham Tim Lasseau. Flowers, right? Tim Flowers is a great mm-hmm. goalkeeper, yeah. Graham Lasseau was the left back. Like, Graham Lasseau won the Premier League with Blackburn um, and was really great at left back. He was like a good attacking uh, left back. And the big thing they had that you probably won't know these names, uh, I'm saying this to most people, you probably will, Taylor. Two wingers in Jason Wilcox and Stuart Ripley, who were not flash, but were just like old fashioned, get to the end line, cross it in kind of wingers. Mm-hmm. 
And Alan Shearer was just in the middle, eating that up, just banging goals in. I think he scored 34 goals the year they won the Premier League. That's a lot of goals, Daryl. I don't sure know if you knew is. that or not. Yeah. And they didn't mess around with like creative attacking midfielders. It was like Tim Sherwood. <laughs> None of that, yeah. And I want to say David Batty or Mark Atkins in, in central midfield. It was just like two solid central midfielders, two wingers, get it wide, cross it in, right? And I kind of think, was it Kenny Dalglish that brought Andy Carroll when he was at Liverpool? I, I wonder so, yeah. if he was hoping to sort of recreate that get it wide, cross it in, score a goal situation. Yeah, how'd that work out? Um, in the long run, it led to Jurgen Klopp, so maybe. It <laughs> so it worked out better there than it did at Blackburn yeah. uh, in the long run. There we go, yeah. So that's the, that's the short story with Blackburn. Mm. Essentially, they had that £40 million uh, transfer fee war chest before all the other teams had a load of money, right? It's really important to remember that yeah. Jack Walkers did this in 1990, 1991. The Premier League didn't start until 1992. So I think another part of this is that after the Premier League starts, a lot of other teams have a lot of money to play with because all that Sky TV Premier League money flows in. Blackburn essentially got a head start, I think, on, yeah. on a big spending. And then eventually the other teams caught up with the spending so that it was no longer such an advantage. I probably should have led with that because I think that's the most important thing of why they won the Premier League and then sort of started to fall away. And the article that I read uh, was sort of like implying that he was or even just straight out saying that he was like the sort of prototype for what ownership in the Premier League would become, that it's a person who like I think he had his companies registered in like Jersey, somewhere where he could basically he yeah, didn't yeah. have to pay like tax on them. He flew to every game on a private jet like he was mm-hmm. this millionaire who was sort of just coming in to buy this thing to to like make it his plaything and do things with it that he because he was kind of bored almost. basically. It felt, but it felt more innocent and lovable mm-hmm. because he really was this sort of lifelong Blackburn yeah. fan, right? It's not like Abramovich who wasn't a Chelsea fan before he took over. So most people weren't upset about it at the time because it had that element of romance to it, right? If this guy's made all his money with the steelworks and now he's going to spend it on his football team, it would be like me pouring my money into Wolves. You know what I mean? It, yeah. like it, it was a bit more romantic at the time than, than what's happening now. So instead, you can pour all your money into the Richmond Kickers. Maybe, yeah. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, while we find a way to make money so much so that it could be poured, let's instead answer <laughs> uh, Sherwin uh, Kalikar's question how, next. How did Scrooge McDuck fill his pool? He had to pour it in, right? I I wonder if he did it himself. I feel like he had to hire people to build that vault. And then maybe he like left them in there and poured the gold on top because he Ooh. did seem kind of villainous. It's the old Batman thing of like, how does he have that technologically sophisticated Batcave without anybody knowing about it? Those workers had to meet a nefarious end. That's the only way the Batcave exists. <laughs> I assume he did it all himself. Why are we talking about Batman? I was talking about Scrooge McDuck. Just, you know, when you've got a giant money vault, like, I feel like you want to keep that quiet. And I feel like it requires a, a large amount of construction that would be difficult to keep secret, similar to the Batcave. I like in your head that Scrooge McDuck and Batman exist in one universe. Yeah, you've, ne- you've not heard of that? <laughs> the, the, uh, it's going to be a, a really weird crossover. <laughs> uh, until we get that crossover movie, Daryl, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about substitutions, shall we? Yes, let's. Um, oh, Zack Snyder would direct that, right? McDuff um, rises. Sherwin Kalakar Sherwin Kalakar asks, why do some managers sub in players with anywhere between 10 minutes and one minute left in the game? Is it always to simply change up the style? Then why not do it earlier in the game? Um, I can't imagine there isn't a rationale other than let's see what happens. 
Um, yeah, I think there's a couple answers here because I do think 10 minutes remaining versus one minute remaining are very different things. I think with 10 minutes remaining, you can see it sort of being the desperation move of if you're chasing the game, you throw in another striker, you take off a defender, you try to make something happen. Vice versa, if you're trying to see out the game, maybe you take off a striker, you put on another defender to help preserve the victory. Whereas with maybe one or two minutes remaining, I think it can be something entirely different. I think it can be you're trying to kill some time because you can have that player take their time getting off the field and the other player comes back comes on there and maybe it takes a minute or 45 seconds and the referee's only going to add maybe 20 seconds on so right there you've sort of like you've killed some time but then the other thing is the disruption of it that if the other team is sort of getting into the rhythm and they're moving the ball and they're moving the ball it's the almost the equivalent of an NBA coach calling a timeout because suddenly the other team has scored like six straight points and you don't want to let them get into too much of a rhythm let them catch fire so you call that timeout it's psychological warfare basically right you're Mm -hmm. frustrating those players who are just like raring to go raring to try and get that equalizer or that winner yep. um, but you're yeah you're icing them in a way and they're having to like like sit there getting all frustrated while a substitution yes. happens and they know why you're doing it that's the mm-hmm. worst part right they know why yeah. you're doing it but they can't stop you yeah and, and so then when you do have the player like like as you'll see sometimes like the player who's being substituted slowly walking slash barely jogging off and the other team is trying yeah. to push that player off even there you're sort of taking yourself out of the game for a moment because you're focused on what the other team is doing and you do then lose that mental edge that you might have otherwise had uh, yeah, I 100% agree with that. Um, okay, so I think we've explained like the one minute left and why yeah. you would do that. Um, to Sherwin's question of why do the let's see what happens, let's change it up sub at 10 minutes, why not earlier in the game? I mean, like to what I said, I think sometimes it can be like it is a desperation move. Yeah. Um, and then maybe other times it can be that you have now spotted like, oh, that defender has who's been up and down the field the entire game is exhausted. We haven't like we've been trying to exploit that, which is why they're exhausted. Now we're going to put on fresh legs to go at that yeah. and see if we can create something. I think it can be. Let's put Stuart uh, Ripley on. Swings and crosses in. <laughs> Perfect. I think it can be like to exploit vulnerabilities that did not exist maybe 10 minutes before that. I think that's true. But I also think it can be that the manager had a plan, right? He had his plan mm-hmm. for the first half. Um, it didn't quite work. He maybe changed a little thing at halftime, gave it 10 minutes, made a sub in the 55th, 60th minute, had this new slightly different plan. That still wasn't working. <laughs> you get to 10 minutes left and you're like 1-0 or 2-0 down. That's the point where you you stop you don't so much tinker and tweak and like have little ideas. It's more just like, all right, let's just go for it. Handbrake off, right? Yep. Ten, 10 minutes to go is probably the time when managers start like seeing the writing on the wall that, okay, I'm going to lose this game and my well thought out thing on my chalkboard with all the stuff, that's <laughs> throw that out the window. Let's just throw some, let's throw some guys on. Yeah, let's get Fernando Llorente in yeah. there to hold the ball up. Let's exactly. See what, let's see how it yeah. goes down. If only Spurs had kept him. <laughs> if only, if only. Yeah, <laughs> so I think a, a short answer there, but I think- He wouldn't handball it t- while he's lying on the floor. He certainly would not. <laughs> uh, any, any other points to make about this one? No, I think I think we nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Sherwin, uh, I hope the brevity worked for you. Uh, final question comes from Taylor Judd. What would happen if all limitations to throw-ins were removed? Would throw-ins <laughs> be more valued? And what technique do you think would become the most common? Some ideas could be overhead pitcher style, granny throws, sidearms. I would go granny throw just for the hilarity of it. But Daryl, what do you gra- think? Is a granny throw the way that you can always pretty much... Uh, scoring basketball it's the way tom haverford bowls uh ball between your, ball between your knees and then like thrown upward i see i see mm-hmm. i see um i think weirdly we sort of have evidence for this mm-hmm. when we've played five aside um or futsal or we've played on a court and we've had like you throw it in a lot of people go with the quick rolling yeah 
That's true. You notice that that if mm-hmm. if it can be that you can just run up and like underarm like quick rolling like bowling style just to get it to someone's feet really quick. I think a lot of footballers naturally prefer that just to Dude, get the game moving. That's a really good answer. Again. Yeah, yeah it's because, the least exciting answer, but it's probably the thing that would happen the most. It is because like like look at the way teams have sort of adjusted the way they take corners. Like it's no longer just bombing into the box and hoping something happens. It's designed set pieces. It's short corners. And I think if you look at throw-ins. Like at least it, like at our level, when you get foul throws, it's usually because the person is is so close to you because you're just trying to get it back into play that you don't like you sort of end up like dropping the ball down, which is yeah. a foul throw. And I think you're right that if you could just roll it in, you'd get play back underway really quickly, and you could also just gently roll it to a player's feet as opposed to them having to like bring it down out of the air or wait for it to bounce and then control it. So yeah, I think you're right. That would yeah. probably be the way they would actually use it the most, even if it seems like they would all just try to hurl it into the box and see what yeah. happens. All right, so we've done the realistic one, which is probably yep. statistically what would happen the most. But what are the more exciting ones? Would it be dangerous to hurl it into the box? I'm picturing like a Tim Howard, the way he threw it yep. out to the wing against Algeria. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. If you threw it into the box that way, that is more dangerous than a regular throw-in, right? Because it doesn't loop. It more just like comes flat. It's almost like what Rory Delap was able to do, but with a bit of extra spin on it as well. So I can see that that's dangerous coming into the box and hard to deal with. What I think would be really interesting and what I would want my team to do if this were allowed is, yeah, if you had Tim Howard with that like howitzer he has just hurling the ball, I would say throw it directly at goal. Because (laughs) if no one touches it and it goes in, it's an indirect free kick. You can't score off of a throw in like that. But it's almost playing chicken because I think defenders and the goalkeeper – it's just your natural instinct to, oh, that ball's going on frame. I got to do something. And I feel like you could create chaos in that way. Like not even aim for your own team, but just hurl it at the goal and see if yeah. somebody panics. Or similar, you could do like an Oliver Norwood Sheffield United thing where you like hang it up towards the top corner and the back yeah. post where it's either going in or you're setting up like a 50-50 where someone's jumping for it as the ball hangs in the air right on the goal line. Mm-hmm. Um, you could cause absolute mayhem like that. Yeah, so I, I, I think, and the Roy Delap thing is what I kept going back to because it worked, but then once teams catch on, like you adjust the way you're going to defend that one. If everybody has the ability to have a Roy Delap throw, I think it just creates chaos. Um, but I think you could and, still and there find are ways teams to defend who- it. Certain teams who just prefer possession, right? They're not going to mm-hmm. risk just like chucking the ball in the box because they're much better at having the ball on the floor and having, you know, Mohamed Salah combined with Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, for example. Right. And so I think what you could then see, and I think, I think you are in agreement that instead of being a long throw into the box that could threaten a goal, you could use it as a way to switch play immediately from a restart yes. instead of having to throw it back and then a big switch across the field. Tim Howard can definitely get the ball from one side of the field to the other where maybe your fullback is standing wide open because everybody has tried to crowd the thrower. And we keep mentioning Tim Howard. I know we're doing that because I mentioned him at the No, it will always start. be Tim Howard. But I, I'm not thinking that goalkeepers would be doing this, right? Because it's too dangerous for a goalkeeper to come all the way over to like the right side of midfield to take I mean, a with throw. That attitude. We're just hoping that like your right back or your right mid or someone has good throwing technique, right? And so they could um, they could switch the field and just like hurl it all the way over to the left wing. I'm not going to lie. It was Tim Howard in every one of these scenarios for me. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, I take your point. And there are going to be some, this is interesting, there'll be some outfield players who have this technique and some who just don't, right? I think it'd be a really hard thing to Mm. get players to learn to be able to have the technique to to hurl it into the box or to switch the field. So again, I think that's why the quick rolling would would reign supreme is because it's easy to do. Yeah, so I think that would be the most efficient way. I think the big switch would be one that you could use to like... uh, like unbalance the team and then just from a showmanship standpoint i would like to see somebody do like the pull-up jumper i don't think it's going to work at all but i think it would just be a cool thing to see (laughs) 
Do you think we see some disguise? Like fake, like you're going to go one way, but then you like roll it behind your back and throw it down the line? Yeah, probably. Because you, that, you really are the fun. rules. The rules are so like mechanical when it comes to how to take a throw in that it does limit oh, what flippant. you're able it's to do. One of the yeah. things I'd change about soccer, they suck, <laughs> the throwing rules. Would you, would you, so would you go this route or would you go like kick in? I think I'd go this route because kicking yeah. lends itself to constantly launching balls into the box as well. And slow down. It's much yeah. easier to cross it. Yeah, and you have to put it down and then everybody like gets in the box. And yeah, I'd go, I'd go the, the thro- uh, unlimited throw-ins, no limitations. Yeah. Or, or in indoor style walls. Let's just put some walls up on the sidelines and see what happens. <laughs> oh, that goes back to um, an, an extra tip I've got for Dustin. Um, if this five-a-side tournament is in a wall situation. I know what you're going to say. It's Daryl's pet peeve. Correct me if I'm wrong, Taylor. I, uh-huh. so we've never really talked about this. I've just you've heard me rant about it, but I don't think we've ever had a deep conversation about it. Bashing it off the wall Mm-mm. means you're bad at soccer. It doesn't mean that you're clever and have found a way around it. I think you're a bad soccer player if you like your way of trying to beat a man is to kick it as hard as you can off the wall and then try and yep. get on the end of it. Same for shooting. If you think it doesn't matter if I shoot wide because I'm going to hit the wall and it bounces back, you're still risking possession doing that right so slamming the ball off the wall i would say thumbs down it should be an absolute last resort i think i think the only time that i have used it consistently not necessarily successfully is like if i am playing as a striker and the ball's into my feet and i'm like close to that wall and i don't have support but i am in a 1v1 scenario that's the criteria then i can sort of like let it glance off the foot and then spin around and it's almost that like wall pass but you're literally using a wall and then you can play yourself into space aside from that yeah definitely bashing it off the wall to try to pass it around a defender is not the best way to go for sure because it's just that it's not accurate, right? It's just Mm-mm. not an accurate way to go. You don't get the spin you're imagining you're going to get. Yeah. yeah, I know what grades I got in geometry and trigonometry. I don't. <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to try to bring that back now. <laughs> All right, with my final indoor rant, we come to the end of the show. Um, aside from scouting, my friend. Aside from scouting, oh, I nearly mm-hmm. skipped scouting. I'm sorry, Ted. You did. Yeah. Uh, All right. It, just get to today's okay. scouting reports. You're just you know offending Ryan, Ted, Ira, Elijah, and many more folks. Look uh, at these we've... scouting names. Oh, this is exciting. This is the golden generation. It, there we go. Uh, the golden generation of scouting. First one comes from Ryan Marzak. The herald, the herald for the army of talent. <laughs> scouting Gio Reyna is Ryan Marzak. Gio Reyna, 17-year-old American midfielder for Borussia Dortmund. Reyna appeared in seven of Borussia Dortmund's nine matches following the resumption of the Bundesliga season. Overall, he appeared in 17 matches in the previous season. He started the final two matches of the season against RB Leipzig and Hoffenheim and recorded an assist on Erling Haaland's opening goal against RB. The unspoken message there from Ryan's report is that apparently Rainer did not have a very good game um, in Dortmund's final game of the season. Yeah, the less said about that, the better. Yeah. Uh, Ted Doshe is scouting Chris Richards, the 20-year-old American centre-back for Bayern. Taylor, we haven't directly talked about this on the show, I don't think, but Richards finally made his debut with the Bayern first team against Freiburg, coming on in the 84th minute. Yes. In his most recent game for Bayern 2 against Carl Zeiss Jena, he showed aerial prowess and a couple of nice long diagonal balls to the flanks. His most recent goal for Bayern 2 was back on the 14th of June when he scored a great glancing header, I saw this on Twitter, from a corner for his fourth goal of the season. Um, Chris Richards, we hope, this is me talking now, we hope goes on loan next season. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would like that. And then the season after that wins the Ballon d'Or? There we go, yes. Perfect. Perfect. <clears throat> Uh, until that happens, we'll instead read Ira Jersey's report on Ashley Sanchez, 21-year-old American attacker for the Washington Spirit. Ashley was given her favorite number two jersey as she started and played 90 minutes in her debut for the Spirit in their 2-1 victory over the Chicago Red Stars in the NWSL Challenge Cup. 
Ashley played primarily as the left midfielder slash winger and what looked like a 4-3-3 in the attack and a 4-1-4-1 defending. Sanchez took advantage of space and made several penetrating runs toward the penalty area and played well enough not to sub off. That's always a positive, but may need to do a bit more defensively in the spirit game model to make herself into the star she's capable of becoming. Uh, we That's will a have great more... scan report. Thanks. It really is. Uh, we will have more news on the NWSL Challenge Cup on Monday. I'm going to be talking to Kim McCauley about what has happened so far. Nice. Focusing specifically on the games themselves and not the uh, the other stuff going on around yes. the games. I think the games are more interesting. Um, yep. Elijah Chappell is scouting Joe Willock, the 20-year-old English midfielder for Arsenal. Um, Elijah says Joe scored his first Premier League goal for Arsenal in their 2-0 win over Southampton. Hard shot from Lacazette was blocked by the goalkeeper and the rebound spilled to Willock, who finished from inside the six-yard box. I remember goals, goals, this goal. Goals. It had multiple multiple shots at goal before Willock finished it for Arsenal. But he finished and that's what <laughs> he matters. Did. yeah. Patrick Delaney is scouting Aaron Connolly, the 20-year-old Irish forward for Brighton. Connolly had a good return to the Premier League life, uh, playing a first-time flick between Arsenal's defenders for Neil Malpe's late winner. Yes, uh, he then started. He then started against Leicester and drew a penalty when running onto a ball played over the top, which was a recurring feature of Brighton's play, uh, which is slightly curious given that Connolly is 5'8 and unlikely to win much against Soyunju and Evans. Basically, that was like their outlet pass was him up top, where he sort of lost those 50-50 challenges regularly. Oscar Leung is scouting Michael Oberfemi, the 19-year-old Irish forward for Southampton. Oberfemi started for Southampton in their 3-0 win over Norwich. He used his body well and provided the pass for Redmond to score the third goal. But he also seemed selfish at times when he had clear passing options on the attack. That's how you get the goals, Oscar. That's how Michael gets the goals. That is how Michael gets the goals. Matt Koss scouting Luca Toussaint, 23-year-old French midfielder for Hertha Berlin. Luca has arrived in Berlin, leaving his old team Lyon without him for the remainder of the Champions League. However, Hertha coach Bruno Labbadia hinted That's how you that pronounce will- it. No one should be pronouncing it the other way. Nah, not Labrador. Uh, hinted that he will likely not play for the remainder of the season, saying, quote, We must not forget that he hasn't played a game for well over two and a half months, end quote. So Luca in Berlin, but maybe not going to be playing for Berlin very much anytime soon. Kenneth Seiden is scouting Tanner Tessman, the 18-year-old American midfielder for FC Dallas. Kenneth says, with the MLS's back tournament coming up, the Tanner Tessman hype train has officially left the station. After two impressive starts replacing an injured Brandon Savania back in March, Tanner spent his quarantine doing interviews with every person who owns a microphone and will now compete with four other homegrown midfielders for FC Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe. Provided, of course, we, FC Dallas yeah. are playing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for more on that, listen to the most recent episode of Allocation Disorder. They talk uh, in depth about FC Dallas up front. Uh, Steven Spiker. Spicher? What would you go with, Daryl, there? I would have gone with just one or the other. Uh, Spiker. Uh, <laughs> scouting Shandon Hopeyu, 21-year-old American midfielder for the Seattle Sounders. You had your chance. You can talk later. On June 30th, Seattle Sounders FC announced that it assigned midfielder Shandon Hopeyu as a homegrown player following five years with the Academy in Tacoma Defiance, the club's USL side. He is their 16th homegrown signing so far. All right. Andrew Baird is scouting Josh Perez, the 22-year-old American winger for CD Castellon. Um, Andrew says, after parting ways with LAFC back in February, Perez is now heading to Spain, having signed what looks to be a one-year deal with Castellon. Castellon is currently in the Segunda División B, the third tier of Spanish football, where they finished top of their regional group for the 1920 season. Uh, the logistics of this are a little fuzzy with all the pandemic issues, but the club is now in a four-team playoff where the winners could earn promotion to the Segunda División. Americans in Spain genuinely make me happy. I feel like we need more of them. More of Darryl, them, please, the- yeah. The final scouting report is about Matt Miazga. How mm. up to date are you on Matt Miazga? Um, 
I know he got into a bit of a fight on the field, right? Or a bit oh, of okay. labor, at least. Yeah. Then if you did not know that, then I was going to have you read this one. But since you know that, I will say uh, Jonas, Jonas Lehmann Karp uh, scouting Matt Miazga, 24-year-old American defender on loan at Reading from Chelsea. Miazga and Darby's Tom Lawrence got into a dust-up on the field after Reading's 2-1 loss against Darby. Miazga and Lawrence bumped chests. Lawrence then gave Miazga a weak headbutt into the chin. <laughs> In response, New Jersey native Matt Miazga gave Lawrence a slap from hell. Uh, both players received red cards for their actions. As uh, Jonas Jonas says, you can take the boy out of Jersey, but you can't take the Jersey out of the boy. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Thank you to everybody for the scouting reports. Um, should add, if you would like to send us a question, it is totalsoccershow.com slash questions. Send us your questions. We will try and answer them. We've had some really great ones lately, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, Indubitably. Taylor, I will close this up by saying thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon.